0: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment, is a it's really, it's going to be a good one too, because I think this is a question, anytime you're in financial problems or in financial debt of some sort, you start thinking about the stuff that you have. Mm-hmm. And bankruptcy, we've talked about this before, it's a scary word, you know it, I know it, everybody knows it when you hear it. Um, and I guess the number one thing is, if you if the best advice is to file for bankruptcy, mm-hmm. do you get to keep your home?
1: Yeah, that's a huge question. Anybody that's a homeowner that's considering bankruptcy, there's a ton of myths that are out there, a ton of misconceptions. You know, Some people think it's impossible. If you file for bankruptcy, you're given that home over, give the keys back to the bank, and that's that automatic foreclosure. Um, they think in every case, you can't keep your home. Others think, well, if you go into bankruptcy, you get rid of all the debt, you get to keep the house. Now, most people don't think that, but I have had a couple people say, well, bankruptcy deals with everything, including the mortgage. But the facts are, Elaine, the vast majority of people that go through bankruptcy, they are able to keep their house. And I'll explain to you why that is. We're going to go through a few concepts today, talking about home equity and talking about exemptions and and different things like that. So if someone's listening to this and they're a homeowner, they're overextended on their non-mortgage debt, um, but they do want to try to make sure they can keep the place they're living in. I think they'll find some good insight today.
0: Okay. So home equity. Um, Is that the same as the value of my home?
1: Similar, It'd be the same as the value of your home if you had no no mortgage against it. If there were no debts on title, if you just owned your home free and clear, well, then your equity is exactly the value of your home. Okay. But almost nobody that I've seen, definitely in the lower mainland, owns their home free and clear. So the way to consider home equity is that it's calculated as the value of your home less the amount of debt that's outstanding that would need to be paid if you were to sell. So for example, and using reasonable numbers in the Lower Mainland, um, if your house was worth a million dollars and you had a mortgage of $950,000, you'd have approximately $50,000 of notional home equity. And I say notional because it's not the case you sell and suddenly you're going to have that $50,000 in hand. There are transaction costs, right? There's going to be realtor costs that might eat up that 50K right there. Um, There's realtor costs, there's legal costs, there's g PST, there might be some appraisals, you know, different things like that. Um, so just this idea of it's the value of your home minus the amount owed on it, that's notional home equity, but your actual home equity can be lower than that.
0: Okay, so it's not, it's not, it's not very rosy. It's not a good picture at that point.
1: Well, well, it all depends. So it can be either good or bad. But I'm just saying, um, you know, if you've got a house worth a million dollars and there's a big mortgage against it, you might not have a whole lot of equity.
0: Right, if I'm needing to sell it because I'm in trouble mm-hmm.
1: in some way. You know, from that point of view, then, yeah, it might not be meant. great. Yeah, you yeah. might not end up with everything that you think you would end up with because again different costs. There might be even a cost to break your mortgage. In some cases, that could be $20,000 or more. So there are a bunch of things that could eat, eat into into a, your home equity. Even though there's a big number there to start, it could be lower once you take all the deductions.
0: Okay. So your next point, every province in this country gives people a set of exemption allowances. Mm-hmm. Um, what it means that there's laws to protect what, certain assets or? Yeah,
1: so if someone files for bankruptcy, um, the government has said, you know, we don't want it to be that bankruptcy takes everything away from you, including your will to live, so to speak. So if someone files for bankruptcy, the government says there are certain assets that you never lose. So, you know, some basic ones are your household furniture. As a trustee, I've never been to someone's house to take their furniture away. Never going to do that. Uh, Your clothing and your medical aids, those are unlimited exemption. One vehicle you're allowed, your tools of the trade you're allowed. For home equity, you're allowed an actual value of equity. So after all deductions and all transaction costs of up to $12,000 in the province of B.C., okay so if someone's sitting here and they've got you know the house at a million and the mortgage at 950 by the time we take all of those transaction costs away they might have less than the twelve thousand dollars of equity which means if that person files for bankruptcy, Nothing happens to their house if they've got less than that exempt amount of equity. They just keep making the payments. And
0: one other piece on your list is RRSPs, mm-hmm. and you didn't you didn't include that. Was that a reason? Was there a reason for that, or just slipped your mind? No, in it, the list? that's
1: usually one of the top ones. So thank you for dragging me back to that one, Elaine. Because yeah, RRSPs. Nobody knows this, but they're a hundred percent exempt. If you have to file for bankruptcy, theoretically, you know you're turning over all of your assets. But if you think about it, if you had a company pension plan, you've never had to turn over your company pension plan. That's untouchable. The government changed the rules in about 2010 to make RRSPs the same status as a pension plan. They essentially can't be collapsed if you file for bankruptcy. Now there's a small caveat that if you've thrown a bunch of money in, in the last 12 months, that can be dragged out, but everything else, anything that's been there for more than a year is 100% safe if you had to file for bankruptcy. So that's a huge exemption for people to be aware of. Don't cash in your RRSPs to pay debt. Um, You can keep them after a bankruptcy.
0: See, and that's so important. What you just said, do not, and and that would be the first thing that I would do if I didn't know better. I would think, oh, I need to use all of my savings to pay off this debt Mm -hmm. before I take other action. Uh, But you don't have to.
1: Absolutely, because quite often, and sometimes the bank tells you to do this or the collection agent tells you to do this. Say, you have to do this by law. You've got to give us your RRSPs. And the facts are, no, there's nothing that you have to do if eyes wide open you want to cash in your RRSPs and you know give your creditors an asset they're not entitled to okay go for it but make sure your eyes are wide open that you know that you don't have to do it you don't
0: that. have to do it it's not law you shouldn't be expected to mm-hmm. Very good. I'm, I'm glad we covered that because I think that's such an important piece for, pe- for people to, uh, to know if they don't know that already. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you talk about here the idea behind exemptions is that we're entitled to retain a certain base level of assets in all circumstances. And I love this mm-hmm. because it's, it's sort of, I mean, love might be a bit of a strong word, but no, I, I, like, <laughs> I like the yeah. fact that, that there's some leeway for some thoughtfulness. For Mm -hmm. people.
1: Yeah, to me it comes down to dignity. Right? Yeah. The dignity of the individual, just because you got into debt, you're no less of a person. And I would feel like less of a person if suddenly someone's carting out my furniture and taking my medical aids and taking my tools the to trade. I can't earn income. So there's a whole idea that bankruptcy deals with the debt, but it's supposed to help you get your dignity back, help you get your self-respect, your self-worth back. And the government agrees with that by saying, yeah, everybody needs a base level of assets that can never be taken from them. And that's the idea behind exemptions.
0: Do you want to talk about uh, the home equity over the exemption allowance, and, and how does that yeah. fit into this discussion?
1: Yeah, so if someone's listening and they say, okay, well, that's well and good, Blair. If I got less than $12,000 of equity, I go into bankruptcy and I get to keep the house, okay, that's great. But, gee, I've got probably twenty dollars or $30,000 or more equity than that. What happens if I go into bankruptcy? Do I have to sell the house? And the answer is no, you don't have to. Now, you may want to if you're going through a bankruptcy and you realize that, you know what, I'm just not able to afford this house, I'm overextended on the mortgage, and now is the time that I want to take the break from the house, you could choose to sell. But in the event that it's a case, you know, you really love the house, you want to stay there, what most people do is they work on an agreement with the trustee, whereby we agree on the amount of equity. And let's say, you know, it's $15,000, for example, mm-hmm. the first $12,000 is exempt, the Person doesn't have to pay anything for it, whatever the extra value of equity would be, in this case, $3,000, they just make an arrangement to pay that to the trustee over monthly payments. So maybe over the case of a year, um, you know, they would pay $300, $200 or something each month, and then they would essentially buy back the equity that's above the exempt amount. Okay. So figure out the equity. The first 12 is the individual's free and clear. And if the property were to get sold, they actually get that paid to them, Elaine. So that's kind of an important thing that if someone outside of a bankruptcy, they've got some equity, but they've also got a massive amount of debt. If they were to sell their property and you know get the money from their proceeds, they'd have to turn it all over to the creditors and pay the debts. That's legally what they should do. If they're in a bankruptcy, if the house gets sold, they get the first $12,000 free and clear. It doesn't have to go and sell the debts. Okay. So it doesn't have to go and pay the debts. So it can be the, the difference between sell your house outside of bankruptcy end up with nothing and still have debt to pay and have to go bankrupt or sell your house within bankruptcy get your $12,000 and you're at the same output. You still had to do the bankruptcy, but at least your $12,000 better off.
0: And here's the thing. If you're sitting there listening to this and listening to Blair describe this and it doesn't make any sense to you and you're in this situation, that's when you go see him Mm -hmm. and say, okay, can you explain this to me again? Because it is a complicated... I mean, if you're not used to dealing with money matters and investments and debt and and all the stuff that you are, you and Sands & Associates are experts at. This is your livelihood. This is what you're... education is based on, then that's when you go see you.
1: Exactly. That's when I go see you. Yeah, every situation is different. And my God, for everyone with their house, this is the largest financial transaction, the biggest investment decision. And so much of us as Canadians, you know, we're proud of being homeowners when we can afford it. Um, So definitely before you take any drastic steps, you come and see a trustee. It's free, unbiased advice to help you understand your options.
0: And it's an emotional thing too. Oh yeah. You guys totally get that. Yeah. I mean, just as a person on the planet, we're so lucky to be able to have homes and purchase homes and live in homes homes, mm-hmm. um, that yeah, there's a lot connected to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, how does how impacted is my mortgage uh, by declaring bankruptcy or, or is it?
1: Yeah. And the answer is, it's typically not. And this is surprising to a lot of folks, but if we figured out that there's no equity or there's a minimal amount of equity that either you're going to buy back or it's below the exempt amount, what most people end up doing is they just keep making their mortgage payments. So if you go into bankruptcy in that house we talked about, there's nothing the trustee needs to deal with because there's not a whole lot of equity. The lenders are quite happy. You just keep making your mortgage payments. A bankruptcy can come and go. And typically there's no impact on the house. You filing for bankruptcy doesn't mean that you'll get forced out of the house. It doesn't trigger an automatic foreclosure. The things that do trigger that are if you're more than three months in arrears on your mortgage. Okay. So sometimes I meet with young couples or young families and they're struggling to pay the mortgage each month or two months delinquent because they're keeping all the credit cards. Cards up to date, right? And you can imagine what I can tell them. We'll do a proposal, or we'll file a bankruptcy, so we can lower that credit card payments, and then suddenly they can afford the mortgage. They're able to stay in their house in that scenario.
0: And that's and that's the work of a licensed insolvency trustee, like Blair is, uh, mm-hmm. because you have the uh, legal ability and uh, knowledge and expertise to be able to negotiate those kinds of things.
1: Yeah, we're the only people that could do something like that. The only people that could help you preserve your equity and reduce the debt, and not have to basically compromise one. For the other.
0: Yeah. So don't believe anybody else <laughs> unless they're a licensed insolvency trustee because they just don't have the the legal expertise or the uh, or the the lawfulness to be able to do it.
1: Yeah. The the trustee role in Canada is unique. It doesn't exist in any other countries that I know of. Um, you know, in the U.S., it's all bankruptcy attorneys, bankruptcy lawyers. You know, in Canada, a licensed insolvency trustee. Your first call, your best call to get some good, unbiased advice.
0: Now I know that there's a bunch of other pieces that you wanted to cover on this, and we're we're running out of time. Is there something that you think is really important that we need to know before we wrap up the segment?
1: You know, I think I think maybe two points just relatively quickly. So one, Elaine, is that a consumer proposal is another great option. So it doesn't always have to be a bankruptcy. And if you're in a consumer proposal, you typically just continue to make your payments on your mortgage. And even renewing your mortgage, from my experience, has not been a challenge. So even if someone's in a consumer proposal and their mortgage comes up for renewal, as long as they're up to date on their payments, they typically are able to renew their mortgage. And the last point just in the few seconds we have left is for folks who are aspiring to home ownership and feel like a bankruptcy might take them off that path for the rest of their lives absolutely not it's as soon as two to three years after a bankruptcy is finished someone could qualify for a mortgage if they've rebuilt their credit and saved a down payment so don't assume that a bankruptcy makes means you can never own a house again. Sometimes it makes you much better off.
0: Okay. If you want more information, go to the website sands-trustee.com. There's loads of information, good questions and answers that people have had that uh, are looked after there. Or if you want to make an appointment, you get a free consultation, 1-800-661-3030. Or you can also phone that number uh, to find a Sands and Associates office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment, we're talking about how not to solve your financial problems. Mistakes not to make when you're in debt. We've talked a lot, Blair, about mistakes not to make when in debt. Let's talk about some of the more common mistakes that people take.
1: Yeah, and sometimes people think, you know, I'm actually doing the right thing here. How could this be a mistake? But I think as we talk more and more, you'll see how sometimes when you think you're doing the right thing, you're actually just enlarging, deepening the problem and actually, you know, working against your own objectives. Yeah, you know? like
0: debt management's you know? a complicated issue.
1: It can be. And, and the challenge too is it's complicated and usually when you're faced with the decisions to make, you're not at your best. You know, you know mm-hmm. you owe money, your self-esteem is down, you're probably working like crazy, you're all stressed out, Maybe stressed, you're, maybe sure. your health is suffering. So it's a complicated situation and it can be a bit tough on you. Personally and emotionally, to actually try to make that decision,
0: and the idea that you're trying to solve one problem but creating another one—yikes! Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's get to it then.
1: Yeah. So first thing, first mistake that that can happen. You know, if you find yourself in debt, and there's the old adage: if you find yourself in a hole, what's the first thing you do is you stop digging. Right. Okay. If you find yourself in debt, the last thing you typically want to do is take on more debt. Okay. Yeah. And there's a couple ways that this that this can take a, take fashion. You know, one is by trying to consolidate your debt, and you're probably thinking well isn't this a smart thing you know i'm going to put all my debt together the way a consolidation loan works is you owe one bank instead of you know five or six um, they pay off all of the other banks then you pay the one bank with a consolidation loan generally a lower interest rate um, so that you've got more cash flow and you can get out of debt now, the challenge here is that quite often people don't qualify for consolidation loans unless they've got a bunch of assets, you know, a house with no mortgage or a bunch of money in the bank. So it's usually the people that don't need it are the people that can get a consolidation loan. Okay. But even if you're able to achieve a consolidation loan, I've seen again and again people consolidate their debt, they pay off the other cards, but they don't change their behavior. So the consolidation loan doesn't go down and the cards go right back to where they were in the space of, you know, six months to a year or something like that.
0: So based on your your experience, it's not the best route to take.
1: No, it, it often doesn't solve the problem. It gives you some short term relief, but it doesn't force you to really change the monthly spending habits that might be getting you into that situation. And
0: that's the key is is that this behavior, your behavior, has gotten in got gotten you into this problem, and and that's what needs to change, right? Yeah,
1: quite quite often, you know. And even on a consolidation loan, you know, it doesn't reduce the amount that you owe. It does reduce the interest, but you're still paying interest. And usually, if you have got a debt problem, you know, just getting a Reduction, the interest rate—you know—that's not going to solve it. Right. You need to do something more drastic than that. Now, you know, two other ways that you can—you know—essentially keep digging in that hole and taking on new debt are even worse. Yeah. You know, number one is payday loans. Um, very simply, do not start this cycle because it's so difficult to stop. So, a payday loan—you can, you know, see them if you drive up or down any main street in, in BC. Here, sure. um, you know, various different names that have iterations of money and cash and different things in, in yeah, them today. Yeah, now exactly <laughs> instant. Um, yeah. The way a payday loan Loan works is you know, you get a short term loan, but at an incredibly high interest rate on an annualized basis, it can be 500% or more of an interest. Um, so, what happens is you get that payday loan, and you maybe you pay your rent or you buy groceries, and then when that loan comes due, you need to take out another loan to pay that one back that one because back. you can't cover the interest. And then when that second one comes due, you take out a third one. I see people regularly with 10, 15 different payday lenders, everyone calling them, everyone Ugh. trying to take money out of their accounts. So, it is a cycle once you get. And it's very difficult to to get off with a payday lender. Wow. Um, The last part here on taking on new debt um, is borrowing from friends and family. Almost always a bad idea. Um, You know, even if friends and family want to help you out. Helping you out typically is not, you know, just paying off one of your credit cards and then, you know, not helping you change the underlying problem here. If someone really wants to help you out, once you've worked out a debt reduction, once you've done a proposal, or if you're working through a bankruptcy, they can help you with some of those reduced payments. But you know, similar to a consolidation loan, it's often, you know, just enlarging the problem, throwing good money after bad, and then you've got a personal relationship that you don't want to let that person down. Because if you can't pay everybody Visa MasterCard and you know your mom or dad that helped you out, you're not allowed to just pay mom or dad. That's giving them a fraudulent preference, it's called, and that can be held against you.
0: Oh, interesting. Ooh, that doesn't sound very good. And yet, you know, people, nature, for the most part, good-natured, want to give you a hand. Mm -hmm. Um, But boy, that can change very quickly if things don't go well.
1: Yeah, and you, you segued beautifully into our, our second point here is, you know, they might want to give you a hand and monetarily as part of it. But sometimes, you know, the best of intentions, the best of advice that can come from friends and family members can be completely wrong.
0: Because if you're coming to me for money, I got lots of good advice for mm-hmm. you, right? Automatically.
1: Yeah. And, you know, even some people that are in the financial industry, you know, unless you're going, you know, with some very specific questions to their expertise, they may not know much more about the average person about debt repayments, and they might give you some bad advice. Um, So, you know, sometimes, you know, you might be speaking to a family member and they say, well, you got all this money in RRSPs, why don't you just cash that in and pay off your debts? You know, just get this thing sorted. You might say, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Not knowing, as we talked many times, RRSPs are fully protected. You don't have to cash that money in. So you might've just been counseled to compromise your entire retirement, but you didn't have to do that if you had full information.
0: I think that's one of the most important things that we've ever talked about is Mm -hmm. the fact that they are protected. Your RRSPs protected. Yep. Really important.
1: Yeah. You know, in fact, the vast majority of assets that most people have are protected. So, you know, when you go to a friend or family member, they might not have the knowledge to give you comfort that no one's going to show up at your door tomorrow. No one's going to start carting your furniture away. You will never go to jail for this debt. You know, there's a bunch of things that if you speak to an expert, they can put your mind at ease very quickly. If you speak to, you know, a well intentioned family member who might not have the right information, you can end up being more anxious and more worried at the end of that conversation.
0: So, if I'm not getting advice from friends, friends, and family, what do I do?
1: Well, you don't want to keep it to yourself, right? Because, you know, especially I see this with family. If, you know, one person is really shouldering all the, all the burdens of debt and earning the income and trying to pay for everything, you know, you can very quickly self-destruct from an emotional and a psychological point of view. So you do need to reach out for help. You know, one of the reasons we do this show, Elaine, is to give people, you know, an easy way to access some basic information. So, you know, start off by listening to the show. We talk about a lot of different topics. When you feel comfortable, reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah, Every trustee in Canada will offer you a free consultation. At SANS, we spend up to an hour with everybody. The last thing on our mind is making you feel judged. The first thing on our mind is helping you feel more in control, helping you get back in the driver's seat of your finances.
0: And you could even go into that first hour free consultation, session. I have a friend of who course. has this situation and yeah. this situation and this and this and this, right?
1: We get that all the time. I yeah. bet. Yeah, friend, family member, you know, even just, hey, I've got some general questions. That's fine. We'll, we'll be happy to help.
0: That's a really good, that's a, yeah, that's a really good point. Um, what about if I'm married or I've got a partner and boy, oh boy, I didn't, you know, they wouldn't be exactly over the moon to know. Or maybe we haven't even entered into a marriage or a a real formal relationship yet that's kind of a, a tough one to yeah. start talking about
1: it can be awkward now that you know obviously we advocate as open as possible as early as possible in a relationship because you know the more open you are about your finances the better you're going to be able to manage things collectively but one fear people have is you know if I have to deal with my debt situation if I have to go and see a trustee file a proposal or even file a bankruptcy is that going to tank my spouse as well is that going to hurt his or her credit is that going to impact his or her assets the short answer is absolutely Absolutely not. So it's possible for one person in a relationship to solve all of their issues and have zero impact on the other person if there's no shared debt and no shared assets. And just by marrying somebody doesn't mean that you share their debt. It's the credit card bill whose name is on it. That's the test.
0: Got it. And in in wrapping up this segment, the last mistake that that we want to talk about, and it's a big one, and, and that's why I want to make sure that we include this one.
1: Yeah, this one, an easy way to say it is you're confusing activity for achievement. You know, you're thinking that because I'm doing something, I'm actually achieving something, and that's making your minimum payments. So if all you're able to make is your minimum payments, you're doing activity every month, but you're actually not achieving anything. Minimum payments on anything over a couple thousand dollars of a credit card debt, they're going to snowball out of control. You'll be on the payment plan for years and years and years. You need a better option if all you're doing is paying minimum payments.
0: Now, if any of this information is resonating with you, go to the website sans-trustee.com. They've got a ton of great questions and answers for you. If you want to make an appointment, it's easy, 1-800-661-3030, and get that free consultation and a free find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call one 800 661 3030 So, uh, business debts. So a trend mm-hmm. in a whole in all kinds of industries these days. Uh, it was it's like being your own boss, whether yeah. you're a freelancer or a contractor or whatever. Yeah, the um, whole
1: side hustle. You know, a lot of people are fine, they need a couple different income streams. Whether it's you know not Uber yet in BC, but it's coming. Right. Uh, but you know, Fedora or do, uh, skip the dishes. There's a bunch of you know little side hustles. A lot of people are becoming self-employed. Yeah, and then you've obviously got you know the classic type of folks. You know, whether it's a contractor or a realtor or somebody where their natural state often is to be self-employed.
0: Exactly. So business debts. Uh, the debt from being in business can Mm -hmm. still follow you. And that's what we're going to talk about in this segment. Yeah, I'm excited
1: on this one, Elaine, because I found, you know, there's really nothing that sets out when you become self-employed. There's no manual the government gives you that says, hey, here's all the pitfalls. Here's the potential things that can come up and bite you. And I see them in my day-to-day again and again, the same types of things. So today, what I wanted to do is to give somebody, you know, if you were about to start out in business, how should you structure things? And what are the big risks? What do you have to mitigate? What do you have to guard against? Because um, being self-employed can be great, uh, but can also be a nightmare if you're not sure what you're doing.
0: Excellent. So we're going to talk about it under this ba- uh, this backdrop of this study, which I thought was fascinating. So mm-hmm. it came from the government of Canada, key small business stats, uh, 2019, January 2019. So listen to this. Between 2010 and 2015, on average, annually, about 95,000 small to medium-sized enterprises were created. Mm-hmm. Created. So lot. you think, wow. I mean, that's what I thought. When I read that, I went, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. But 85,000 disappeared.
1: Over the same period. Yeah. Amazing, right? Yes, indeed.
0: So business debt basics, that's what this segment's all about. What what are, or what do you think are the main um, sort of keys that potential business owners need to understand before becoming self-employed, because you see them at a different mm-hmm. point in their in this process. So if I was starting out, what mm-hmm. are the things that I I should know?
1: You know the first thing, Elaine that I think, and let's spend a few minutes here is just thinking about the structure of your business, because you know being self-employed can mean a number of different things, and there's three main structures that you can have if you're being a self-employed person. Um you know the first one is the most simple, and this is being a sole proprietor. So you know, essentially, this is the default. If you just started, you know, doing a side hustle or starting up business on your own, you never created a company, you never um, went into partnership with anybody else. Well, by definition, you're a sole proprietor. Yes. And what that means is that there's no separation between you and the business. The assets and the debts of the business are also your personal assets or, and debts. Right. So that's very crystal clear. And most of the time, in many cases, a proprietorship is the right answer for a lot of people. It's not complicated. Uh, it's much more simple than having a separate entity. But proprietorship is your default. If you don't do anything different and you just start um, basically doing business not as an employee, by default, you're a proprietor.
0: Okay. Okay
1: other two types of structures are a little bit less common, uh, partnership. So if one or more persons are combining their resources in a business, they might, now they're not required to do this, but they might establish formal terms and become a partnership, which is relatively straightforward. You can find standard partnership agreements. But what's really important here too is again, there's no separation between the business and yourself personally. Got it. And what's really important with a partnership and why I tend to you know, advise against it if someone is starting out, um, you know, essentially you're buying the assets and liability of the other partners as well. So if the business fails, all the partners fail. If one partner fails, all the partners fail. So you are really basically taking on the liabilities of your partner as well. So you've gotta be careful. Fair enough. Um, The third and probably the the more common, so I see proprietors more often than not, partnerships very rarely, but the second most common that I do see is a corporation. Alrighty. And what this is, is you've set up an incorporated company that becomes a legally separate entity. So essentially it's a separate legal person um, that can sue, can be sued, can have assets, can have liabilities. And most of the time, the reason people set up a corporation is because they want to create some separation uh, between themselves and the business, you know, from liability from a debt point of view.
0: So that means if, if the business goes down, it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to go down.
1: Theoretically, yes. And I okay. say theoretically yeah. because um, that's usually the idea is that you you're separating, having an incorporated company, you're not taking on the liabilities personally, but as we're going to talk about, a lot of liabilities of the business, even if it's incorporated, become your personal liability if you're the director, the person running the business. So you lose a bit of protection there. And then also, you know, if you were thinking about you're starting up a business, you start this new incorporated company that's been there for a month, and you go to the bank and you try to get financing. What do you think the bank's going to say? This corporation's got no history. They're going to say, you know what? We want you to put your name on the dotted line as well. So then you as the proprietor, not the proprietor, sorry, the owner of the corporation, uh, you've taken on some liabilities there. So theoretically, it gives you some protection, but in practice, not always.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like, yeah, it's not necessarily going to go that way, especially if you need Funds from a bank.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yes. Okay.
0: So, common debts that come up even for, you know, a super simple business operation.
1: Yeah, the most common ones that we tend to see uh, are generally the more severe debts, so Canada Revenue Agency debt. So, a couple really important ones here, and these are some that people have no idea about until they're already, you know, behind the eight balls sometimes. uh, One is collecting and remitting GST. So as much as we don't like to pay GST on our purchases, imagine if you're a business owner that was supposed to be charging it on all the purchases and you didn't do so. And the government comes to you for that money, yeah, which I see happen again and again. So, <laughs> yes. and I'm sorry, but ignorance is not a defense uh, with the it's government. I, I think we all know it, that,
0: especially with the CRA, they That's actually right. don't care. Nope. that you didn't know.
1: And as we started off by saying, there's no handbook. There really isn't. It's, it falls to yourself to get some good advice, accountant, lawyer, trustee uh, to make sure that you're set up correctly. But so the first one is collecting and remitting GST. So if you are in more than thirty thousand dollars of revenue in a year, you need to register with CRA, get a GST number, and file GST. Returns and make remittances to, to CRA. Remittances mean payments uh, yes. to CRA. Yeah, yeah. There's only a small number of professions where this won't apply—a very, very small number that I've seen. I won't even go through them to give people false hope. It's almost everybody. Uh, if you're earning over thirty thousand, you've got to register for GST.
0: And that's the magic number. Yes, is thirty thousand. Okay. Yeah,
1: and again, if you fail to do so, CRA can still go back and say, "Well, you should have done so," um, and therefore we're assessing you based on the GST that should have been collected, even if you never charged it to your customers. Okay. And And now if you're an incorporated business, that GST debt becomes your personal debt. So okay. that's one of those types of things where you think the corporation might be separating you, but no. whether proprietorship, partnership, or corporation, you owe GST as the person behind the business.
0: And that's sort of typical of CRA in a lot of cases yeah. that we've talked about, where they sort of uh, defy what everybody else is impacted by, but no, not CRA.
1: Mm-hmm. And the concept there is they're what's called an involuntary creditor. So the law says, hey, the bank's always had this discretion, they could loan money or not, and there's some risk associated to it. Um, but if you're with CRA, you know, essentially they never made the choice to allow you to go, into business to allow you to collect GST and not remit it to them so that's why they get the special treatment in the law. You can agree or disagree but the concept of them not agreeing to loan you money but suddenly they've got a debt that's why they get a little bit more power in the law.
0: Got it. What about payroll?
1: Stuff. Yeah. So we talked about GST, and even more severe than that um, is the idea of payroll source deductions. So whether you're a proprietor, a partnership, or a corporation, if you've got employees, you're required to withhold payments from their from their wages and remit those to, G, to Sorry, to the government. So things like CPP, income tax, um, employment insurance, um, those type of premiums have to be paid. Um, you know, in, even in addition to withholding from the employee, the employer also has to commit a portion of payments as well so in total those are called source deductions and if you fail to remit those to the government I would say nothing will shut your business down more quickly. The way the government views that is they're viewed as trust amounts, which means it's money you're supposed to hold in trust for the government, never use it in your business operations. So sometimes it can be a small number of months you might be able to go not remitting source deductions before the government would have a bailiff at the business's door saying, you know what, you've got to deal with this debt. It's our money that you're using in your operations.
0: Yeah, and that's happened. I work for a company that did that, said we were all contract players, and so we don't need to do this. Mm -hmm. And then about eight, nine, ten months in, they said, oops, sorry, we made a huge error and this is remember when we told you to put money aside <laughs> yeah we need that money now oh,
1: yeah. yeah it
0: was really awesome
1: well and that's you've hit on something there Elaine that if you're an employer and you think you've been smart by hiring everybody on contract you might be falling to that exact example oh, Elaine yeah. just outlined by saying you know CRA might come back and say well if this walks like a duck quacks like a duck these are really employees and we want you to make all these remittances that you've been telling them they have to make themselves so, and that's
0: exactly how it worked out mm-hmm. because we had uh, we had to be at work at a certain time we had yep. to do certain jobs, it was very clearly laid out, and that's where they got nailed.
1: And if you're not providing services to other folks, well, then clearly it's a captive employer-employee relationship. Sierra will look at the substance there.
0: Excellent. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, the next one was a personal CPP, EI, and income tax did we cover that part of it?
1: Uh, that's just to say, if you're not incorporated, if you're a proprietor yourself, uh, when you do your taxes every year, um, you've got to make sure that you've set money aside to cover your personal obligations for income taxes, for CPP personal, and for EI. Okay. So not even just for your employees, uh, but for yourself as well. Those, those have to get paid.
0: Make sure you do that. Mm-hmm. So what are the mistakes that people... Or, or yeah, what are the things that we shouldn't do, or, or somebody shouldn't do when it comes to business debts? Is there some things that you can sort of?
1: Yeah, the biggest do? mistake that I find that people have is yeah, they, yeah. That the people make is they've got this you know great drive and great passion for their business and they just jump in. They don't sit mm-hmm. back. They don't plan. They don't sit down with an accountant, with a lawyer. They don't sit there and debate the various structures. You know, they incorporate because a friend or a colleague said they should do that, or they stay as a proprietor because a, because a friend or a colleague told them they should do that. Uh, but they ignore the whole idea of planning planning and structuring correctly, because there are some businesses which make a whole lot of sense to be a corporation. Um, There are others where all you're doing is paying extra money to accountants, extra money to lawyers every year. Yeah. <coughs> Pardon me? Yeah. And you're not actually getting any benefit from being structured as a corporation. Got it. So you yeah. want to sit down at the outset and make sure your structure is correct.
0: So that real, real good planning has to happen. Mm-hmm. And I liked your next one because I bet this happens so often mm-hmm. that people put their own money in. Yeah. Because, as you would, right? If you care about this thing, you're passionate about it, you want to start it, you can see a need, fulfill that need. Put your own money in, and
1: exactly. And you know, yeah. so often you know, you think you're just one quarter away, you're a few months away, things yeah. are going to change. You've got these rose colored glasses because you know your abilities and you know there's a need here, and you're going to be able to fill it, and the business is going to catch up eventually. Sure.
0: That's also so, being real super positive, too, yeah, about which, it, right? Which you
1: need that to be an entrepreneur Absolutely. for sure. Um, but you've got to decide at what point um, do you stop injecting personal funds. And I've seen folks in my office where it just breaks my heart because you know they went through all of their personal funds and then they started to involve other families. Family members, you know, sometimes it's parents, grandparents, you know, some real estate wealth the family might have had. It just gets chiseled away um, over time, being injected into a business that objectively, knowing nothing about the business, you'd be saying, "Well, if the business can't cash flow itself after the first year, or two years, if you're consistently injecting personal funds into it, it's not a viable business." But that can be a very difficult, very emotional discussion to try to have. But just at the headline level, if you're injecting personal funds into a business on a regular basis, it's generally not a viable business.
0: So that's, so that's kind of the clue then. Is not to do to be doing it on a regular basis. That's you're in right. trouble. So, and this is a chance for you to talk about, you know, how, where, and how self-employed contractors or business owners can get help with all of this stuff. I mean, you get to shine, <laughs> shine your light. <laughs> well, right? yeah,
1: and just in the last few minutes, we have um, these are some of the best meetings that, that I have, Elaine, because I'm able to set out the structure for folks, help them understand. If you're incorporated, here's how you can transition to a different structure. Um, so, I find a licensed insolvency trustee is a great place for people to start if they're in business, but they've got some CRA debts that's holding them back. uh, Also, an accountant or a lawyer can be a great resource.
0: Go see Sands & Associates. They're easy to find. 1-800-661-3030. Find their locations. There's 16 offices and uh, find that office near you and make that appointment. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So lots of people talk about credit scores when it comes to sort of as a barometer for your mm-hmm. financial health. Um, and the this segment's going to be all about figuring out or finding out why that might not be the best measure, one. And two, that it kind of doesn't matter, which I thought a bit shocking. I know not everybody knows that. I know that you've said before, uh, you should try to figure out how to maintain, um, instead of trying to maintain that perfect credit score, figure out how to get out of debt. Exactly. That's the number one thing. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the credit score.
1: Yeah. So my take on credit scores, and I've been doing personal insolvency work for quite some time. I think this is the greatest magic trick of misdirection played by the financial industry against consumers in that they're directing us to be so focused on this indicator, which actually has very little to do with whether we're doing well or not doing well financially, but has everything to do with, are we making the bank money every month? Are we paying our interest costs every month?
0: And that's, I remember when we first talked about that, I was shocked shocked mm-hmm. that that's what it was based on because yeah. you just because it's it it's a misnomer it doesn't indicate that that's what that's about
1: well and it's everywhere now too and you're seeing you know all, all this more you know free credit score monitoring or check your score and all this stuff it's coming out with these you know different high interest debt type of providers but they provide free credit score monitoring so it's an added value and, and to me it's not but right uh, so
0: repeat again why why it's not a why it's not a good indicator well
1: that's what we're going to talk about in some good detail here but you know in a nutshell the person who has the best financial situation of a ton of assets and is paying zero amounts of interest every month, paying nothing on their debts, probably has a terrible credit score. The clients that come in to see me quite often, 70% of them or more, have perfect credit, They might have $80,000 in debt, credit card debt, payday loans, no assets to speak of to clear that debt. But because they make all their minimum payments every month, they're never late on anything. The bank gets all their interest payments. Their credit score could look great from that metric.
0: It's determined by the bank. And that's the Mm -hmm. thing to remember as we go through this. So uh, do you want to do basic stuff about the credit score? Okay, good. (laughs) Let's do that. It's a number.
1: Yeah. So, you know, people talk about their credit rating, their credit score. Your credit score is a number and it ranges from a low of about 300 to a high of about 900. So, you know, generally anything over about 800 is quite good. And that's what most people would shoot for but the essential thing to know here is anytime you get a free credit score online it's essentially fictional you know no one knows the exact algorithm that your bank they're going to be applying for is going to be using because they're all different okay so when you sit down with Royal Bank or with Bmo or with CIBC your credit score could be completely different from each lender because the algorithms algorithms that they use are slightly different in how they calculate the the actual metric
0: so that's weird that there isn't mm-hmm. sort of a stand uh, industry standard
1: no so it's indicative so you know you know if you Get your free credit score and it's 800, it's not going to come back at 300 at a different bank, right. but it could be quite a bit different from institution to institution. So, you know, chasing a certain number based on, you know, a third party metric doesn't make a whole lot of sense because your bank might have a completely different number, might weight things a little bit different
0: okay so do you want to move on to the next piece then why uh, d- why is a credit score and credit report such a poor measure of your financial standing it's of showing you how well or how you're how well or not very well how you're I'm not I'm not saying that properly. I get what you're saying. You're either doing well or you're not doing well.
1: Right. So let's talk about a couple scenarios where your credit score might be high, but you're actually not doing too well. Right. So a couple ways your credit score might be high, and this is the one that I see all the time, is you're only making minimum payments. So, you got a bunch of this debt that's out there, but you know, you might be paying $200 a month on a debt that's $30,000 because all it is is the minimum payments that's clearing interest.
0: And that could be your credit card.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But you're never late on that. You never miss payments. Sure. Um, You know, when they change the rates a little bit, you just absorb it. Um, But it doesn't indicate anything that you'll ever pay this debt off. So all that happens every month is that creditor reports on your credit report that, yep, the debt was paid as agreed on time, paid as agreed on time. And that becomes a very positive thing on your credit report, even though it's a debt that might be growing every month. Um, You know, it might be you're on the 80-year plan to pay it off with just your minimum payments. But from your credit score, credit report point of view, it's viewed as a positive. But from your overall financial health, it's actually quite negative having a bunch of credit card debt that you're only paying minimums on. That's not a recipe for you ever getting out of debt.
0: Uh, which is which is what you don't think, right? That's like, right. You just don't think that. So, can you reduce? Uh, is it is it's reducing? It's not reducing your credit rating, but it's reducing that vulnerability to uh, not looking after your debt properly. Is there ways to do that?
1: What do you mean? I'm sorry.
0: Oh well, I'm just thinking. Um, how do you how do you fix how do you fix not uh, getting out of that? that cycle.
1: Yeah, and that's what you have, now I understand, what you have to do is you've got to, no, you've got to essentially separate yourself from saying, okay, the credit score is the only indicator, I'm paying my minimums, credit score looks good, so therefore I must be doing the right thing. You've got to kind of break that model and say, you know what, even though the credit score looks great, I know logically when I'm paying $200 minimum payment and $190 of it is going to interest, I'm probably not doing the right thing for me long-term financially. So you need to almost accept that for you to deal with a debt situation, your credit score has to be the first casualty. You're gonna take a knock on the credit score but this is a temporary thing. People can go zero credit score after a bankruptcy to getting a mortgage in about two years. So I think if people understand your credit score is something that can change over time, it doesn't need to be perfect every moment of your life, um, they'll generally have more of an ability to say, okay, I'm gonna accept a short-term setback deal with the debt, and then rebuild the credit again in the future.
0: Got it. So uh, you've got a list here of being able to reduce, uh, the, being able to make make changes here. So making a large payment or closing an account.
1: Yeah. So what this was, Elaine, is I'm trying to show how it's counterintuitive. So we said, you know, here's some things you can do that your credit score is going to be high, but they're the wrong thing. You know, one is making all your minimum payments. Credit score is going to be high, but you may never get out of debt. Yes. You know, another might be having just tons of debt, you know, six different accounts. Um, none of them are in delinquency, but in the total aggregate, that's a lot of credit that you probably won't pay off. That doesn't hurt your credit score. Got a couple it. Of things that do hurt your credit score are actually the right thing for you to be doing, but they knock your credit score. Which so,
0: is making that big payment.
1: Yeah. So if you make a large payment on account or close an account, you lose all of the history there, especially if you close the account. I see, so okay. where I'm saying there is you see people go and they want to apply for a mortgage. So they go through and they clear up their credit. They get rid of a few accounts they haven't used for a while. Smart thing to do, simplify your life from a credit score, credit rating point of view. The wrong thing to do because you might have just lost 10 years of history of everything paid on account on time. So closing accounts is generally not a good idea. It will impact your credit score negatively because you lose the history.
0: Okay, so would you consolidate? Would you take that money that you're owing in one spot and put it on another? And that would be a bigger balance at the end of the month then too.
1: Well, and, and that's it. If we're gaming the credit score, um, you might do that. But who knows, you shouldn't try to game the credit score. You should be doing what's right right for you financially, which would be, yeah, if you can consolidate into a lower interest rate, then yeah, you'd want to do that and move it over to another account. But if that results in that account being, you know, more than a 50% credit balance utilization, meaning that if you've got a $10,000 limit and you consolidating puts it above roughly 5,000, you doing the right thing, might result in your credit score dropping because now you're using more of the available credit. So it's a bunch of counterintuitive stuff, right? You making the right decision often results in the credit score reflecting poorly.
0: Now, how important is it to have a, a good credit history?
1: That's an important question, Elaine, because for most of the time in our lives, it's not important at all. Interesting. It, it makes no difference. I remember being 18 years old and I walked into a stereo shop and the guy said, you know, what? you should finance this over three years so you can build credit history. I thought, well, that's really smart. I'm happy he's trying to help me out. From 18 to 21, would I have ever gotten a mortgage? No. The only debt I needed was a student loan, which I didn't need any credit credit history for. But I could tell he was planting the seed for me as a young consumer saying, okay, I better be conscious of this credit rating type of thing. Interesting. You know, I sit down with folks and sometimes people are very proud to say, you know, I've got a great credit rating. And I say, okay, sometimes a little flippantly, okay, well, how's that working out for you? Right? If you've got this great credit rating, if it really means a lot, just go to the bank. I'm sure if you've got great credit, they'll loan you all the money you need to get out of debt. You're not going to need me. Well, what happens is they go to the bank and the bank says, yeah, you might have 900 credit, but I'm um, sorry, we're not comfortable to loan you any money because you don't have any assets or anything like that. So right. the credit score that you've been focused on, when it actually comes down to it, it may not do much for you. Right. When you actually need it is when you're sitting down to get a mortgage, to do a car financing, different things like that. And as I've said, two years of disciplined behavior, you can often build a credit score to what you would need, a good minimum level. You don't need to be focused on it your whole life.
0: See, and I think the key here is, and I'm gonna I'm going to blow the horn here for a second, Mm -hmm. is to sit down with somebody like yourself, a licensed insolvency trustee, to help me figure that stuff out, because it is counterintuitive. And if it's a credit score, a good one is something I've always worked towards, and then all of a sudden you're telling me that that's not necessarily important. I'm at a bit of a loss Mm -hmm. because I'm one of those people that got told it is important to have a good credit story. You know, history, exactly.
1: If you're debt-free, having great credit is awesome, but if you've got debt, it's the wrong way to focus.
0: Go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's a great website, just a ton of good information, or give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Get a free consultation find it as well as you can find an office near you. 16 offices here in British Columbia.